Some people are born to it. Others feel they had a calling, and others, the world just gives them no choice. I had an ultimate either to uh, go to prison or uh, join the military, and they sent me to uh, Korea. We ran into a lot of ammunition dumps, and we'd sneak down there and throw in hand grenades and things, you know, and just blow them all up. So we, we felt we did a lot there. On the next Snap Judgment from PRX NPR, we proudly present GI, stories about the men and women who fight our wars. Welcome to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and I am excited because today we're digging into some truly amazing stories about real people who, because of duty, honor, faith, circumstance, they made the decision to serve and fight on our nation's behalf. We're calling this episode GI, and because this program does deal with stories of warfare and military conflict, It may not be appropriate for young children or sensitive listeners. Discretion is advised. We're going to start out not on the front lines of Iraq or Afghanistan. We're going to get there. But start off instead. Our next story is a brave soldier of the Korean War. A different time. First name Jose. Last name Mares. M A R E S. Battlefield Commission. First Lieutenant in the Army. I was born in a little cowboy town, Prescott, Arizona. And I figured there has to be something better than this. We got in trouble so bad that then by the time I reached the uh, age of 15, I had an ultimate either to uh, go to prison or uh, join the military. And they sent me to uh, Korea. I think one of my brothers told me, don't get close to anybody. If you do, you might get hurt in the long run. But on the boat to Korea, he was with so many other nervous young men, it was hard not to make friends. Jose became especially close to a young man named Wally Walker. He was one of my best friends, you know, and somebody I liked to hang around with, you know. We landed in Pusan. I wanted to excel in what I was doing, so I took a lot of unnecessary chances. Jose was good at what he did. He was soon promoted to battlefield lieutenant and forward observer, which meant finding the enemy and directing artillery fire toward them. And Jose promoted his friends in order to keep them close. I got a hold of Wally Walker and I told him, I said, no, Wally, I want you to be my driver. And I says, uh, I'm not going to let you get in trouble. I'm, I'm going to watch over you and we'll go back to Chicago and have a good time like we used to. And then uh, one day we had to look at a big hill over there. So I sent Wally Walker, my friend, I said, now don't worry. Nothing's going to happen. It's going to be a short scrimmage. You'll come right back. Well, he didn't come back. So then we found out that uh, he was taken as a prisoner of war. Jose was crushed, but he couldn't stop now. He kept fighting with his unit until a couple months later, midway through his Thanksgiving dinner, he heard it. Trumpets, you know, and blowing of horns and whistles, and all of a sudden they just started firing. It sounded like firecrackers. But the man right here to my left was shot right in the head, and the man to my right was shot in the chest. And I just jumped behind the log. This person seemed like he had some authority, and he hollered out, "Every man for himself." Now, to me, that, that was a bad decision. And I says, "All right, now you guys, let's stick it out. Let's just go out. Let's try to make it to our side." And we stayed north for about five days. I got these guys together and I said, now what we've got to do is that we're headed to our home. But if we see anything that needs to be destroyed, we need to do it just for the simple fact of doing it. We ran into a lot of ammunition dumps and we'd sneak down there and throw in hand grenades and things, you know, and just blow them all up. So we, we felt we did a lot there. But one day, it was uh, cold, it was snowing, but we were laying underneath its leaves, you know, the side of the mountain. And these other guys were all covered up. And one guy had a real bad cough, and we just hoped that nobody would come by. But as fate would have it, uh, the Koreans come by and they heard him cough. So as they heard where he was coughing, they, they bayoneted him, you know, and they killed him there. 
And then they went to the other places where we were at, and they dug us all up. And they headed us down to camp. The Korean soldiers took Jose to a prisoner of war camp. But every day they would take us to uh, different types of interrogation, different tortures. They'd separate us sometimes and put us in cages. They took me out about, oh, I'd say midnight, and it was freezing. And this river was frozen solid. And they figured that one way they could get something out of me was to put me over there naked and get water and throw it on my head and on my feet until it crossed. I was too cold to say anything. But that was one of the worst things I had happen to me, was that type of torture. After a few days, they, they tried to get so many things out of us, and they couldn't. So what they did was got us all up with the guards, and they walked us all the way down, and they stopped by a little stream that was going by. I'll never forget this stream right here, and they had us kneel down. Well, I'm blindfolded. There was uh, one, two, three, four of us, and I was the third person. The Korean came by to the first person, and he asked him, he says, what is your name, your rank, and your service number? And then all the guy did was just blare out his name, rank, and service number. And the Korean put that pistol to his head and fired it. And uh, the blood, the pieces of bone fell over on the second guy and on me and on the other guy. And uh, the guy fell into the water. And I, I felt to myself, you know, I said, I love my country and I love what I was doing. I said, but I don't know if I could do that. They came to the second guy. And the second guy, they asked him the same question, same thing. And all he did was holler out his name, fired a pistol, and that guy died. And this man, he took a pistol, put it around in the chamber, and he put it to my head, my right side. And I could feel the heat of the muzzle. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I said, well, this is it. And all of a sudden, I heard the screeching of some brakes on a truck. And I could hear a Chinese officer. And they told the Korean that there would be no more killing of prisoners of war. The Korean got so mad that he began to pistol whip me. And he pistol whipped me so bad that I'm completely deaf out of this ear. Can't hear a thing. And I fell into the water. Well, the Chinese, they thought I was dead. And they put me in a cage with the other two that were dead. And they hung us up on a big, tall raft so that everybody could see what would happen to you if you didn't cooperate. A couple of days later, I don't know, Chinese guard passing by, he saw me breathing. So they cut down that thing and I fell out. Then just a few days later, we started on a death march. And you had all these prisoners come in. They just jammed you into the cave. But invariably, every night, somebody would die. If somebody sat in front of you, and it was just a kind of unwritten law, you know, that if any, you could take anything you wanted off of that person and pass it back. I had one fellow, he died right in front of me in Marm, and I felt, uh, what did I need from this guy? I needed a coat, you know, so I got the field jacket off him and it was mine. Then we picked him up and passed him over, and by the time he got to the end, he was completely naked. One day I come out of interrogation and I looked up up on the hill there and there was a house up there. So I asked the Chinese guard what's up there and he said, it's a hospital and anybody goes up there will surely die. So I got permission to go up there. And you know who I was looking for? Wally Walker. See, all this time, different prisoner war camps that I was at, I was asking for Wally Walker. I opened the rice doors and you could smell the stench and the smell of death and I would cross over someone that died and somebody would be pulling me from my jacket and they'd say, have mercy on me, help me, help me. And I'll never forget that, that rings in my mind all the time. And I just kept looking around, I was ignoring them. And finally in the corner, an old straw mat, there was a skeleton of a boy, and it was Wally Walker. And the rats were chewing on his flesh. I couldn't stand that, you know. I got Wally and I held him in my arms and. And he looked at me and he said, is that you, Joe? I said, yeah, that's me. And he said, Joe, I don't know whether I'm going to go to heaven or I'm going to go to hell. Can you help me? Well, I told Wally because I didn't know any difference. I told him, we're in hell right now. And if we get to heaven, that's good, but we're in hell right now. And I had the rice bowl with sugar right there and I started plucking, putting it in his mouth and forcing him to eat it, forcing him to eat it until it started coming out of his mouth. Then he pushed my hands away, and then he died.
died right there in my arms. I picked him up. I carried him outside by a big old tree. You know, I dug a grave with my hands, shallow grave, and I put him in there, covered him up, and I said, surely God knows. Surely God knows. Finally, after several months, a group of soldiers rescued Jose from his prison camp. And I, I saw something. I saw our American flag flying in the breeze. And that made me feel so good inside that whatever I'd done was for my country. Before the conflict, Jose weighed around 160 pounds. When he left Korea, he weighed 95 pounds. He recovered from his wounds and gained peace with his time as a POW slowly by gaining weight, getting married, and finding God. See, this thing about Wally Walker dying and me not being able to tell him, I've always felt that his blood's on my hands because I was never able to respond. But I believe that God and his grace has made a plan for things like this. And uh, I feel in my heart that I'm gonna see him again. And when I do that, uh, well, that'll be one of the rejoicing times. Many thanks to Jose for sharing his story. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. And now, there are different ways to fight a war. They tried to tell Frances Liberty that she didn't qualify for any of them. Too bad. Frances was hard-headed. I came home after finishing my time at nursing school, and I said to my father, I'm going to join the Army, and he said, no, you're not. And I went down and joined. Women of America, march with Uncle Sam's army. Join the WAC. This is Frances Liberty, but most people call her Lib. The year is 1941. World War II is underway, and nurses are in big demand. They weren't really prepared to handle women in those days. Nurses were classified as lower than low. But to Frances, this didn't matter. So she enlisted, and like all the other soldiers, had to complete basic training. We pitched tents. We hiked, we climbed walls, we crawled around in mud. We had people shooting at us, you know, under the barbed wire and all that stuff. That's when I learned to keep my fanny down. It was also very exciting for me. Remember, I came from Catholic hospital and Catholic schools. So this was a big world to me, taking a shower with everybody else, you know, and all that stuff. After World War II, Frances was sent to the Korean War and then to Vietnam, where she was promoted to lieutenant colonel. That's a lot of power to give to a woman, a lot of power. But perhaps one of her greatest powers was her creative ways to ease the suffering of her patients. I used to get the nurses that were pretty and made them use cologne and stuff and go in there and sit with the boys that were that badly hurt, because I figured, if they're gonna die, let them see an American woman that smells good, you know? For some patients, it was her compassion that brought them comfort. So I'm saying my rosary beads and sitting there and this fellow says to me, what's that noise? I said to him, I'm saying my rosary beads. He said, I'm Jewish. I said, you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, same guy. So we sat there for a while and he was really abrupt. Well, he was dying, you know. So pretty soon the OR came in and they said, we're gonna take him, Lib. I said, okay. So as I was getting up to leave, he said to me, let me have those beads. They may be lucky. I said, oh, they're more than luck. So I gave him the beads. And I figured, chalked it up to another pair of rosary beads lost, because I lost a lot of them that way. The next day, I'm in the hall, and one of the nurses came along to me, and she said to me, you know that last guy we took? And I said, yes. She said, he did better than the others. He's already gone to Japan. I said, isn't that marvelous? I was there about maybe a couple of months, and I got a package. I don't know how this guy found me, but it was a pair of rosary beads, and it said, I'm keeping the others. So I'm home and retired now. This happened maybe 10 years ago. 
I get a phone call. I don't know how this guy finds me. He's in New York. He's the vice president of a bank. He said, I just want you to know that in my desk is your rosary beads. And he said, in another thing, I just had a granddaughter born in Israel. And he said, she's Liberty Ann. I said, how could you do that to a kid? He said, I always talked about you, and my son wanted her name that. I cried. <laughs> On the ground, in the air, serve your country everywhere. Join the Women's Army Corps today. Join the Women's Army Corps today. Frances Liberty passed away in 2004, but we want to thank her anyway. And a great big thanks to the Veterans History Project for all their help with the past two stories you've just heard. To hear other veteran stories and see their pictures, we're going to have a link on our site. And thanks as well to Natalia Yeager and Mark Ristich for producing that story. You're listening to a very special Snap Judgment this week. We're exploring the stories of those people who fight in our name. This is a GI episode. Don't miss a minute. Snap Judgment will be right back after the break. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. On today's episode, GI, we're looking at stories behind the stories of those tasked with protecting our country. And now, I used to work for the embassy in Malaysia, and the only other young people working there, the entire facility, were the elite Marine Guard, the coolest of all cool people who have ever been cool, and I start trying to hang with them, you know. They understand the city, Kuala Lumpur, like nobody's business. We step to clubs you can't even find in the daytime. And everywhere we knock, everyone's all smile. And cheek and cheek, Marines, Marines. And one night, Big Red, he said, get ready, man. Tonight, we ain't fooling around. I have never known him to fool around. But I'm like, all right. I get in the car with the Marines. And we roll straight to the special place, secret club. Big Red knocks on the door, flashes the sign, entree. Brown men come out to greet the Marines with the hugging and the shaking hands. The club is spectacular. Beats, smells, gorgeous people writhing, grooving. I see this beautiful woman. The Marines say, get over there and make it happen, civilian. I get over there. Me and her were dancing and smiling and dancing and dancing. Then, bang, an explosion. Right near my ear, just like that, I see the world spinning faster and faster. I'm falling down to the floor. And what is this fluid gushing from the side of my head? There's fighting, chairs, tables crashing. Somebody's catching up beating. Where did that pretty girl go? And now, whoops, I'm sleepy. I need to sleep. I wake up draped across someone's back like a sack of onions. He's sprinting down the road full speed, laughing like a madman. Dude! He keeps running and laughing. He's a strong brother. Dude! Big Red. He finally stops, sets me down, says, I had to get you out of theater. Seems like you picked up the wrong girl, civilian. What happened? Her boyfriend cracked you over the head with a bottle. I touch my scalp and it feels like curry. Where is everybody? They're back busting heads on your behalf. For real? On my behalf? Y'all shouldn't have. Shouldn't have. 
Semper Fi, brother. Semper Fi. And while he's laughing, I start to tear up a little bit. Maybe it's because my head's spinning, but maybe it's because it's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Semper Fi. Today, on Snap Judgment, we're going behind the war stories, trying to learn a little about the people wearing the uniforms. The good, the bad, and the in-between. My name is Marco Martinez, Navy Cross recipient. My father was in the Army, and since I was a little boy, I had been really interested in being in the armed forces. Although when I was in middle school, I, I deviated off that path. The middle school that I went to was racially divided and had around 13 to 15 active gangs. And at that point, that's what started my, my odyssey into gang life. Once you get beat into the particular gang that I was from, then you have to show your, your worth by doing dirt for the neighborhood, which is stealing cars, uh, shooting at rival gang members, doing whatever feasible for a young gangster like me to show that I had what it took to be uh, in the higher echelon of that gang. I look back on it now and it's really shameful, but at the time, I felt really proud. I felt like I had a lot of power. You had this false sense of pride that if you did die, it was for the neighborhood and you know it was gonna be glorious and all this stuff like that, when in actuality, it was all for nothing. I was going out like I was like a stat. Um, I had a teacher tell me that I wasn't gonna amount. I mean, basically she told me this, you're not gonna amount to sh She told me that straight to my face. It wasn't because just because he's Hispanic, he's not gonna amount to anything. It was because I showed her that I, I didn't wanna be anything. I was being disruptive, I didn't wanna do my work, and I joined the gang. I mean, I, I showed so many people throughout my life that I was nothing. And finally, when I actually looked in the mirror and saw, you know what, what they're saying is right. And at that point, I took a real hard look at what I was doing and decided to get myself out of that situation by joining the Marine Corps, which uh, I enlisted in the year 2000. It was uh, April 12, 2003, and my unit was tasked with a reconnaissance mission. We had intelligence reports that Saddam Hussein had been spotted in this particular area called uh, Atramiya, Iraq, which is a suburb of Baghdad. On that day, it was really hot, and as we rolled over there, really bad feeling that everyone had, and kind of like this tension in the air. And as we rolled up to this area, Within five minutes, we were we were automatically ambushed by around 200 to 300 insurgents. And we were only a squad-sized force, maybe 60 people at most. It was one of the most uh, horrific firefights I've been in. The amount of firepower and the amount of explosives these people had there's so many rounds impacting the side of our vehicle that it sounds like someone hit a jackpot in Las Vegas. Just you can hear the coins plunking down on each other. Bullets, explosions. As you were maneuvering, you were uh, shooting targets of opportunity down in windows, behind trees, behind cars. And before we knew it, we were cut off from the rest of the platoon, so we we're basically no man's land. So my squad leader chose himself to go out, and as it happened, some insurgent threw a grenade, and the grenade literally uh, almost blew his leg off. So at that point, I became uh, in charge since I was second in command. I took charge of the squad and continued on with the assault. We became pinned down in a courtyard. These guys were probably trained at some kind of terror camp. We even threw grenades towards their area and they were so trained that they actually threw the grenades back. I, I finally just say, you know what, if we don't get the upper hand at this point, we're gonna lose momentum in the assault. So I charged the house, but my weapon jammed and I had to retreat back to a, a palm tree. As they were covering me, this Marine, he got shot in the torso, which he immediately was paralyzed from the waist down. At that point, I realized that that was my opening. So I assaulted the building, threw a grenade in the building, it exploded, and with that explosion, I killed one of the insurgents inside the house. And as they were still disorganized and trying to recuperate, I burst into the house and I killed all of them by, by myself. 
I, was, I felt grateful to be alive because the, the rounds from the enemy had come so close to me that I had felt the heat, heat of the rounds pass me. The thing that was going through my mind was, if I don't kill them, they're gonna kill me, and I better get the drop on them first, otherwise I'm going home in a box. I felt that I was just doing what I was supposed to be doing as a Marine. We had roughly around five men uh, wounded, seriously. Fortunately, nobody was killed, and we attribute that to skill and um, just pure luck. The firefight lasted a total of five hours. At that point, the battalion commander decided that there was no need to sacrifice more men for only a sighting. Um, as we were leaving, uh, special forces was called in to do a mop-up in gang intelligence, and that's how we found out that some people were from Syria, some people were from Chechnya, some people were from all over the world. We were in a town called uh, Samawa in southern Iraq. This staff sergeant had walked up to me and said, hey, Martinez, and I was like, hey, what's up, staff sergeant? He's like, did you know you're nominated for the Navy Cross? And I couldn't believe it because the Navy Cross is something that heroes get, something that Marines like Chesty Puller have gotten, but not people like me. I, I, it just it didn't sit well with me at first. I didn't feel like I did anything out of the ordinary. I mean, I wasn't out there in the battlefield by myself. I see that award as it's for my whole platoon. Violence is not senseless if it's used for the right reasons, defending the country. It's senseless to shoot other guys because they're wearing the color, because they're standing on the wrong block, but that's enough to kill them. That's senseless violence. Violence isn't senseless. Senseless violence is senseless. I'm the first Hispanic since the Vietnam War to receive the Navy Cross. I consider myself an American first, but I'm proud to show that as a Hispanic person, they were able to contribute to the American dream and, and to what we stand for as Americans. Many thanks to Sergeant Marco Martinez. He wrote a book called Hardcore. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Snap's own Anna Sussman and Mark Ristich. Now, our next story comes from a young man whose fight is not yet over. Snap Judgment's own Stephanie Fu spoke to Christopher Arendt. Chris wasn't like the other kids in his rural Michigan town. He called himself a poet. They called him a faggot. So after graduation, Chris thought the military would be the best option. It would get him out of his podunk town and show everybody. It was about proving something. I wanted to do something manly because I'd been really effeminate my whole life. In 2004, Chris was stationed in Cuba. They drove us to a place called Camp America, and on our way, I saw Guantanamo for the first time. It just smelled like stinking hot humans with the smell like Frank's hot sauce. And I knew what the smell was because it was from the OC spray. It's like a riot control mace spray. The OC spray was layered into their sleeping mats. Their Qurans would have it soaked into the pages. It was on everything. Chris was a guard at Guantanamo Bay. But things got complicated his very first day. So I was just looking in the cell blocks, and I, I looked in, and this one guy had no, he was missing an arm, had a funny, skinny little face, and he looked really young. He looked up at me, he was the first detainee that actually looked at me through the cell, and he started to demand toilet paper. We'd been told very specifically the rules on toilet paper. They can only have eight sheets because of these legendary toilet paper knives that they were allegedly capable of making. MP, MP. He spoke in perfect British accent, so he had a pretty cunning ability to cut me down. I caved. So I gave him all the, the, this big bundle of toilet paper, and he grabbed onto my hand and dropped to the bottom of his cell. And my shoulder's kind of inside this rectangle hole in the cell door. And my head's against the grate, and he's pulling it so that I'm going as far as I can into the hole. And then I looked down at him, and he was just so hateful. I've always done everything I could to make everybody around me happy, and I've never, I've never been hated like that. After that experience, Chris tried to talk to the detainees like he would anyone else. One night, he told a young detainee that if America were invaded by a foreign country, he'd be right there, trying to kick them out. The hallway was miked. A few days later, he was taken off the blocks. Most of the time, he filed papers at a desk job, but often, he had to videotape the disciplinary measures. Just gross usages of physical force. People kicking people, detainees in the face for way too long, beatings that went on forever. 
50 or 60 of these things that happened, I had to tape them. That's part of the rules. You know, I never once wrote up a report that said such and such a person used excessive amounts of force during this. Just a lot of times, I just exercised a lot of cowardice. And eventually, the inmate's pain became his own. This detainee in, in Delta Block all night long was just screaming and screaming and screaming about I about nothing. I don't know. I mean, it was in it was in, in Islam, just howling, and it wasn't close to insanity. It was inside insanity. I knew exactly what he was screaming about, no matter what language it was in. I mean, I know, I know, I I I get it. Chris was discharged after a year and flew home to Michigan. When I came back from my deployment, I exhibited an entirely different set of psychological traits than I had before. Chris suddenly found it difficult to stay in one place, to maintain a connection with school, friends, a girl, even a city. So he kept moving. Chris hit the road with a backpack and a few dollars, trying to find freedom. Washington, D.C., Detroit, Wisconsin. Every time I get settled in, I, all I, everything just becomes a cell. My life becomes Camp Delta again, and I just don't like it. Chicago to Denver, San Francisco. Because when Chris has too long to think, his mind tends to wander to a dark place. I will be totally frank and not embarrassed to admit that I think about suicide an awful lot. I didn't ever think about this before I had hours sitting in a room thinking about all of the people that I stopped from killing themselves. They hung themselves up with sheets inside of their cells and begged and pleaded while we were trying to cut them down to stop, to, to let them just hang there and die. To have to cut somebody down out of killing themselves and, and apologize to them for welcoming them back into the same miserable world that will totally drive a person suicidal. You know, that's, that's a big-ass burden. Midway through his American journey, Chris was contacted by Mwatham Begg, a former detainee at Guantanamo. He invited Chris to join him and other detainees in denouncing Gitmo in a speaking tour across Europe. London's a crazy place for an American. I mean, everything was so close, people everywhere. Yeah, the next morning when we were on our way to our first series of interviews, I made a joke about how in the States we like everything big except for our cells, in reference to prison cells, and, and then there was like a dead silence in the car. I got really nervous, so all of a sudden I was like, is it okay to make jokes? I mean, is it? it's a nervous reaction, and I started trying to explain myself, and he started laughing. The panels were composed of a number of former Guantanamo detainees, but Chris was the only guard willing to speak. He did not know most of the detainees. They had been in different blocks. But one day, over dinner, he ran into a familiar face. I, I saw his face and I was just like, you, you, toilet paper guy. I was just like staring at him and I was like, I have thought so much about what it would be like to meet you. This is, you are my greatest fear. So we're sitting there at the dinner table and all of a sudden he just goes, I remember you. So I like lit up, I was like, Oh my God. And I'm just like staring at him and I'm like, I remember you too. That was our moment. It was more than forgiveness. I feel like there was nothing to forgive. The detainees had suffered so much more than he had, but they were coping in ways he could not. They had a community of support in each other and in their religion that Chris did not understand. I kind of liked that cultural identity, that they had that thing that they just were, you know? Like I've always been kind of fascinated by people that are something because I've never found out what it is that I could really call myself other than a veteran or a freak. Six months later, Chris had finally found his community at the Veterans Sanctuary in Ithaca. He worked as the art director there for an organization called Combat Paper, teaching veterans how to pulp their uniforms and turn them into paper and art. Okay, so when you first pulped your uniform. Mm -hmm. What did that feel like? Do you remember? Angry. And the emotions that I experience when I'm letting that out of me is not going to be some beautiful thing. My therapy is going to be a hard and difficult and long process. But the work was doing him good. Chris seemed different here. Happy. So you're not leaving here? Mm -mm. No point in it. It's home. He was all smiles when we said goodbye and I flew home. But just three months later, I found out that he was leaving Ithaca, going back to sleeping on people's couches. I found this on his blog. I don't want to heal. 
I don't want redemption or salvation. I want to feel it. I want to feel the guilt and pain so that I know somebody does. He may be on the open road, but Chris is not free. I remember back to when he told me about a detainee in Guantanamo who stopped him one day. MP, he asked, why am I in this cage? Chris responded, but we are trapped as well, just in a bigger cage. Many, many thanks to Christopher for sharing his story with us at Snap. You've got a lot of people pulling for you, Christopher. Please know this. I want to show some love as well to Justine Sherrocker, author of the book, Tortured, When Good Soldiers Do Bad Things. And on our site, we're going to have a link to the Veterans Sanctuary. It's a place that welcomes homeless veterans of all stripes, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu. And when we return, find out how an underweight, vegetarian pacifist ended up in the United States Army. Stay tuned. Listening to Snap Judgment, the GI episode. We're delving into the lives lived behind the uniform. And now, one of my favorite people in all the land is Daya Lakshmi Narayanan. And you'll be hearing more from her on subsequent episodes of the show. But this story is about Daya's uncle. When my mother came to the United States from India, she decided to sponsor her brothers and sister to come to the United States. 26 years back. That's my uncle. First name is Ravi Chandran, and my last name is Ramanujam. Or Ravi for short. He was a mechanical engineer in India, so he started to look for a job. And then I saw some uh, interesting things from Army. They were offering so many uh, logistic systems they were developing. As soon as I saw them on U.S. Army job, I was uh, fascinated. So I thought, why can't I try that? So my family was skeptical because Ravi, like the rest of our family, is Hindu. Hindu means they follow non-violence. They don't believe in killing any living organism. It's a way of life for us. But the army recruiters told Ravi that as an engineer, he wouldn't have to shoot anyone. When my uncle went to sign up for the army, he didn't pass the medical exam. I was not even uh, meeting the basic weight requirement for the army. It was weighing only 103 or 104 pounds. So I remember the recruiters came to our house every day to bring Ravi all kinds of food. Peanut butter, bananas and bread. And it took me around three weeks to gain the, what they wanted. Now he weighs 115 after being fattened up. I passed. The drill sergeant couldn't pronounce Ravi's last name, Ramanujam. Then they all come up with, they call me Rambo. <laughs> Rambo, he'll say, what Rambo, he'll say. Get up, Rambo, go to push up, they'll say. I'm coming to get you. Here's this man who is a non-citizen. English isn't his first language. And he won't eat the food that they have at basic training because he's vegetarian. The cooks made him special vegetarian meals. Beans, corn, salads. So they took care of me very well. To me, this was, wow, they must be making a whole lot of exceptions to have him on board. The military really valued him. They all went beyond what they can do for me, actually. But even though he was maintaining his Hindu beliefs, when we visited him in basic training, he looked very foreign to us, very American. I used to have a mushtak, long hair and everything, so as soon as I went in the army, I completely shaved my hair and took my mushtak. When my wife saw me, she was really terrified. Oh, God, she said. In Hindu beliefs, the only time you shave your head is if it's a sign of mourning or some kind of religious activity. And it was the opposite. He was doing something that may be in conflict with religious activity. 
Uncle Ravi was assigned to work on the Apache helicopter. We were the first to deploy to Operation Desert Storm. Right from the beginning when Saudi Arabia, the oil fields were already burned, everything, fire was going everywhere. It was especially dangerous for Ravi because he's brown. They were concerned with him being killed by friendly fire. But the military held true to its word. Ravi never had to shoot a gun at a human being. Then after, as soon as I came back from the war, I got citizenship. I follow my belief, but still, I'm an American. After Ravi's positive experience in the U.S. Army, my family has come around, sort of. My dad's still pretty skeptical about war in general. My mom now works for a defense contractor, thanks to my Uncle Ravi. Thank you, Daya. Thank you, Rambo. That is what I call citizenship the hard way. Now, our next guest, enlisted in the United States Marine Corps at the not-so-tender age of 25. I'd really like to share my story because I'm a sergeant of Marines, and I'm very proud to be a Marine, but I do not speak for the Marines. I speak for myself. So let's go talk. Okay. I remember how much 9-11 infected me. And in my mind, my country was at war, and being a fighting age male, you know, I was obligated to go and serve my country. And I recruited myself. I walked in there. I said, I'm going to be a Marine. Send me as soon as possible. I guess it's interesting coming from a mother that does midwifery and brings life into this world. You know, she's against violence. She's against war. What was it like for you when he told you that he had enlisted in the Marine Corps? He didn't want to tell me, I'm certain, because I'd been out there trying to keep the war from even starting. My norm was to put everything military into the same box and shove it in the closet in the far back corner and just go, well, that doesn't pertain to me because I don't do war. Guess what? As soon as my son enlisted, I suddenly discovered that every single person in the military is a human being and someone else's loved one. I was in a particularly uh, bad area of Iraq. We got attacked a lot. We did a lot of... uh, counterinsurgency operations and, you know, picked up a lot of high-value targets and we saw a lot of action. There is no possible way that you can actually have a real inkling of what it's going to feel like the first time you get shot at. When you're with a grunt unit, every single day you have to prepare yourself to leave that wire and to leave your life behind. I mean, I remember on my mother's birthday we were keen up for a particular operation and uh, they're like hey you, you guys might want to call your family before we go out tonight this is going to be a crazy one so I remember having to call and try to wish my mom a happy birthday but in the back of my mind being like is this going to be the last time I talk to her you know like that could have been his farewell call because he was heading out to do some big bad stuff that day and he, well mom <laughs> this might be it there's never really a safe moment at war because at any time you could be walking out to a portage on and then bam, flash, there it goes. Every day before I'd go outside the wire where it's smoking, joking, you know, getting ready, getting briefed. I get a hard time about this when I tell people about it, but uh, I'd always sing a song in my head and it would get me like pumped up. It was a Phil Collins song in the air tonight. You know, like, is it coming tonight? Is it coming in the air tonight? Can you hear it? You know, can you smell it? Are you ready? And then, all right, let's go do this. just be kicking in some doors and searching houses or a lot of times we'd go out at night and snatch people in the middle of the night people that uh, needed to get interrogated you know I believed in the cause at the time you know I really believed in what we were over there for and that there was going to be these weapons of mass destruction and that you know we were rooting out all evil can I ask you how many friends you lost I've lost quite a few I'll say that. Okay, but you told me a cool story where people would be rolling through civilians' gardens. I would notice that sometimes these Marines, be it that, you know, we had just gotten in a firefight or what have you, they would start walking through these gardens. Vegetable gardens. Right, it's their vegetable gardens, and these people are very poor. You know, they have all this oil money, but it doesn't go to the people. 
And so I felt really strongly that instead of taking away that father's way to feed his family, that it was really important that we went around these gardens and that we respected their land. I know if somebody walked through my mother's garden, I would have a big problem with it and maybe become a combatant if I had not been one before. So, What was it like for you when you got back? The first thing that I remember from returning from it is that we flew through uh, Bangor, Maine. There was this group of veterans, and uh, it was like 3.30 in the morning, and they had taken their time and lined the halls. And when we got off the plane, they were clapping. This, like, feeling just totally overwhelmed me. You know, you get the goosebumps, and uh, Marines don't cry. We don't really show a lot of emotion unless we're really angry. And that was the first time I just had to fight back tears, really taken by it, you know. We have this look in our eye, only a look that another combat veteran would probably recognize. And these people recognized it, and they were shaking our hands, and felt really good. Unfortunately, uh, the rest of society just wasn't like that for me. It was a very challenging experience. From a young age, you come up with these core beliefs and values. The main one that rings true for almost every human being, every sane human being, is thou shalt not kill. And war isn't easy. I mean, sometimes you have a split decision to say this person lives or dies. And sometimes you're right, and sometimes you're wrong but you have to live with those when you get back. A girl that I had gone to high school with flippantly told me that she thought I was a, uh, a baby killer. And I don't think she was old enough or mature enough to really understand the implications, but that's something that's really stuck with me. I went to the uh, local grocery store with my mother and we went to purchase some wine and uh, they asked me for my ID and I handed them my active duty military ID. The lady looked at it and then threw it at me, hit me in the chest and said, we don't take that here. And uh, I guess the only thing more ferocious than a Marine is a Marine mom because I had to drag her out of there before she did something bad. It's heartbreaking. They went and did what their commander in chief asked them to do over and over and over and over and over again. Sadly, my son had friends here in town say, so does that mean you're a confirmed killer now? And uh, it's comparable to what the Vietnam vets went through, I'm pretty sure. It's hard. It's hard. It's like, yeah, you can sit home and play your video games, and I'll go take care of making sure that you still can play those video games. No problem. Yeah. Got it. Coming back, I mean, we had to worry about who was going to persecute us and how we judged ourselves. Well, yeah, we're warriors, but we have hearts, and we want to love and things of that nature, so... You're going to sit here and tell me that I messed up? Till you walk a mile in my boots, I don't think you have that right. So with the PTSD, when did you first start having symptoms? As soon as I got back home, I pretty much knew right then that something just was different. Something kind of didn't click. You can't expect any of them to be the same. Right. How can you go into the underworld, basically into hell, and return the same? Nobody can. Sorry, doesn't work that way. I decided to go to San Diego to visit my uncle. To get there, I got on the train, and I looked out the window to my left, and I saw this crowd of people and two men running through the crowd with machine guns, shoving people down. And then I saw three police officers running after them with pistols. My instant war mode kicked back in and shouted for everybody to get down in my train. Get down! Get down! There's quite a good possibility that the bullets could penetrate through the train. I tried to kick open the doors and find a way to get out. I didn't really get that far. I was apprehended by the uh, gentleman that checks tickets. He pushed me up against the wall, but I'm frantically trying to convince this guy that, look, I'm a United States Marine, you need to let me off this train. Some people are probably going to die over there. Eventually, he uh, called me down and informed me that they were shooting a movie on the uh, train track right next to me. And uh, he was on the radio, you know, calling for backup. My heart was still beating at like 1,000 beats a minute. For me, it was very real, and it really took me back to a real place. And so eventually, I talked my way out of it, explained to him I didn't see any signs that said that there was a movie. You know, I was not a threat or danger. Here I am trying to do this honorable thing and go help these people. And uh, I'm ending up in handcuffs, and they're talking about not letting me ride the train. And uh, I had to make it to the beverage cart so that I could drink a beer and try to calm myself down. Because my adrenaline's flowing. So for me, being in Iraq where you have all these people that blend in, but they could possibly be a combatant, it was really the same thing for me. 
But now they're looking at me like I'm absolutely absurd. I kind of made this sheepish look at everybody, whispering to each other. Darton looks over at me, kind of waved and said, sorry, I just got back from Iraq. And the train was completely packed, but nobody wanted to sit next to me, you know. So it was a very embarrassing moment that, you know, I hadn't exercised the right judgment somehow. Or Did anybody recognize that you had good intentions and thank you? Absolutely not. I was completely ostracized from that moment. This is when I really started going inward and, you know, not wanting to be out in the public eye. I don't know if you can talk about this or not, but they put you through something called a D-Warrior training. We had a psychologist come and talk to us. She said that, you know, if you go see somebody, go see somebody out in town so you're not going to see it in your record book. You know, it's concerning that you may lose your security clearance. If you say that you're suffering from these psychological issues. Exactly. And uh, I think that that person probably, you know, did me a big disservice by uh, saying those things to me. But on the inside, I'm like, you know, really, I need some help here, guys. I'm, I'm struggling. They uh, tried me on some antidepressants, and I started having suicidal thoughts. And one night, it actually chambered around, and I was, uh, you know, really contemplating killing myself just because I didn't want to deal with it anymore. And it was, really, I don't want to die. I do, I do want to live. Fortunately, I took a uh, two-week class with other veterans. You know, all these other Marines were experiencing the exact same symptoms that I was. And then they would bring in these therapy dogs for veterans with uh, PTSD. Lexi! There she is. Now remember what happened last time. She barfed puppy milk on you. (laughs) That doesn't bother me. So are these therapy dogs in the sense of how someone who was blind would have a therapy dog? They are certified in that way. You wanted to heal on the left side? Right side. For myself, since I uh, experience a lot of bad dreams and, you know, I wake up sweating and this kind of thing, my dog will be trained to be able to wake me up out of it. It's really sweet. I know, you see these great big guys with these little tiny dogs. But they grow up, and it's a lifetime bond. When I play with this dog, it actually makes me feel better. That's all I'm thinking about. It's helping. Absolutely. They don't judge you. If you look like you're zoning out into some world, they'll come over and nudge you and say, hey, you know, snap out of it, and uh, find that that really helps. As long as she's licking, it's a kiss. I can play with Lucky forever. big thank you to Rita Daniels for bringing Chance's story to SNAP. We're going to have a link on our site to people and pets assisting wounded warriors. Many thanks as well to the people who made this episode possible. The soldiers, the sailors, the airmen, the Marines. SNAP Judgment was produced by myself, but never alone. Many thanks to the A-Team, Mr. Mark Ristich, Stephanie Fu, Rita Daniels, Will Urbina, Mitzi Mock, Anna Sussman, the Snap Production Crew, Renzo Gorio, Natalia Yeager, and Pat City miller And if you want to take Afghanistan, they're not going to be much help. But if you want to win the Tri-County Softball Championship, have I got the team for you. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting, without whom... This show would not be possible. And PRX, putting the public in public media, prx.org. And no, this is not the news. This has never been the news. In fact, you could wander onto an army base wearing your uncle's four-star general insignia, start barking out orders to troops till they find out, they find out about the imposter and deliver the punishment you so justly deserve. You could do all that and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.